Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name's James Pavey and I'm the head of the Rural Business and Estates team at Erwin Mitchell and I'm in the hot seat this week. I'm joined by my colleague and National Head of Planning and Environment, Claire Patricka Riding, and by Ed Mansell Lewis, who's head of the Vineyard Group and a director in Stratton Parker's Rural Team. Ed's been instrumental in developing and launching a new consultancy service within Stratton Parker, Rural Ambitions, recently, which focuses on diversification and in particular placemaking within the rural market. We'll hear more about that later on. At the start of every year, we produce a What's on the Horizon report. It's a forecast of the legal goings-on affecting the real estate market, covering the whole spectrum from environmental issues and planning to investment, tax and housing. Now we're halfway, we're at the halfway point of 2021. We're going to be providing you with an update, focusing on the rural and environmental legal developments. We'll look at the importance of diversification on rural real estate as we emerge from the pandemic, what it means to create a sense of place and how you could be affected by the Environment Bill and, and many other things. About 12 million people live in the UK's rural areas and they contribute an estimated 400 billion to the economy. And that's by no means the whole picture in a small island. In particular with COVID, the countryside is readily accessible to most people, whether that's access to the open countryside for walking or cycling or to a burgeoning number of tourist destinations. Since the start of COVID, we've seen more and more people leave towns and cities for rural areas. And that's both in the purchase and in the rental markets, as has been made possible by the rise of home working. We've seen increased pressure on the public rights of way network. And we've seen a massive increase in the demand for, for domestic holidays in rural places. And while COVID-19 restrictions ease, and hopefully we're not going to be halted by the Indian variant, Rural areas, but particularly rural landowners, remain exposed to the impacts of Brexit, that's subsidy change and export frictions, and also climate change. And the subsidy regime is changing. The, the regime that we inherited from our EU membership is on a taper down to nothing from the 1st of January 2021 to the 1st of January 2028. The replacement subsidy, something called the Environmental Land Management Scheme, or ELMS, is being trailed and trialed, and the government is at the moment consulting on a golden handshake for farmers, a one-off exit payment from the, uh, the pre-existing subsidy. So there's a real mixture of pressure and opportunity. And in the next half an hour or so, we're not going to, in practice, be able to offer you a panacea for every problem or tell you how to make your fortune, but we will try to steer you in the right direction on a practical basis on a number of matters. And we're gonna to touch on really the following topics, diversification, placemaking, from an environmental standpoint, natural capital and, and, and I suppose the, the very nascent markets that are emerging there, subsidy, the, the ELM subsidy that, that I mentioned. And if we get time, we'll touch on public access and the, the pressures and opportunity and, and also the residential property market. But what I'd like to start off with is, is a bit of clarity. We spend a lot of time, I suppose, as, as professionals in the rural sector talking about diversification. And it's, it's a phrase that's used with a with, with a certain amount of loaded meaning and with an assumption by most people who use it that they know what, it, what they mean by that and, uh, and so, so do the people they're talking to. Uh, placemaking, I guess, Ed, is a, is a slightly less familiar term to landowners, but it's a fairly familiar one to, to planners and development surveyors and development lawyers. But 
can, let's let's just start off with a bit of bit of sort of context and clarification. When when you talk about diversification and when you talk about placemaking, what what do you understand? What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on the Owen Mitchell podcast, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, when I think of diversification, I think of the creation of new and broader income streams around what was the core existing, typically agricultural business of yesteryear. And um, we see diversification into all sorts of sectors, into the renewable sector, into client and customer facing sectors like hospitality and events. And with regard to the role of placemaking, it's based upon the understanding that businesses thrive in busy environments and placemaking is a way of creating vibrant places which are good for happiness, well-being and where people want to spend their time, their money and they return to with their friends and their family and they dwell there for significant periods of time. The link between diversification and placemaking is that profit is determined by revenue, revenue is determined by footfall and footfall can be manipulated by placemaking. And so there is a direct link between placemaking and diversification in that manner. Ed, that's incredibly helpful, as I say. I think it's, it's so often that one glosses across these things. Let's think. We're, we're halfway through 2021. We're emerging from a pandemic. We're six months, if you like, into Brexit proper. Where, where are we in terms of, of, of sort of diversification and placemaking on a, on, a, on a spectrum? How far can we go in terms of, 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 sort of, of giving advice to, to our land-based clients? Some things I'm guessing we can, you know, we we can readily grasp as opportunities. I have in mind, for example, you had a good a good example in, in Leicestershire, which you might share with us. But also, perhaps we can come on to the things where where we we can't necessarily yet sort of pinpoint where 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 subsidy is going, where perhaps perhaps the um, the market needs to emerge in terms of of the use of green space. Let's let's. I mean, starting with with at a very practical level, what if you were faced with a a farmer with 1500 acres, um, mixed use, you, you do the sums. And, and from the point of view of trying to predict profit, particularly as the, as the, the subsidy as we've known it starts to taper, he might have an opportunity or she might have an opportunity to take a golden handshake. But that would be a sort of passing it on to the next next generation of that. But I, what would you be thinking of doing? You know, trying to get them to think of doing with that fifteen hundred acres, perhaps you know, five miles from the nearest conurbation. Okay. Well, I think um, that, that the first thing to do is to is to just reflect on the importance of monitoring the trends as we come out of this particularly volatile period. And um, there are sectors that people have typically diversified into, like the wedding sector, for instance, that have been very badly hit by by COVID. Um, and so there, there is a focus period of, um, of consideration on what trends dictate um, useful solutions in each case. Now, one thing that landowners have in abundance, which I think is really, really relevant um, and very powerful in the context of customer facing businesses, is their access to the natural green space around them that they occupy or they own. And I would say that farmers and landowners don't always make the most of that land when they consider the reuse of some of the buildings that they have in their diversification process. And what I mean by that is we'll often set a relatively fixed demise and say your business can operate within this environment. And um, it may be that 
uh, that that demise could be larger if we were to willingly give or make available more land. And we've seen through the monitor of engagement with Natural England, which is a, a survey that's done every now and again by Natural England, people are flooding into the countryside in their droves and there is a real appetite to spend time outdoors for the wellness benefit that it affords. And if we can harness that and take a resource-based view as landowners and as consultants of landowners, then I think we would do very well to open up the areas of the farms and the estates that we own, occupy or advise upon and say, if it's out of earshot of your family home, if it's out of eyesight of your family home, and if it's good for the tenant businesses and the trading partners that operate within your estate or your farm, then we should think very, very carefully about making the woodlands, the, um, the open pastures, the headlands, the riverbanks or the lakesides available to trading businesses for the benefit that those natural environments would have for their own businesses. And let's not forget that the states or farms are only as strong, as resilient, as profitable as the businesses that are comprised within those estates or those farms. And so it's directly in our interest to make sure that those businesses are flourishing because ultimately we flourish as well. That's well put. I mean, uh, one thinks fairly, fairly readily that actually Unless, unless you're a, I suppose, a rarity, and, and some will count themselves very lucky that you will quite often have a public rights of way network to tap into. Or if you're on the uplands, you might have the right to roam, the, the access right under the Countryside and Right of Way Act on your doorstep. And that may be something you can harness, which, is, which isn't even on your your land as, as, as part of what will drive, drive footfall. And I suppose it's also fair to say that although the changes that have come pretty rapidly I mean, some, some of which one could see coming down the line with hindsight anyway. But I think the changes in terms of working and pressures and, 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 and being at home that have come with COVID, we, a, lot of we, a lot of them are here to stay. I mean, one could postulate a case, which is that everyone will be back to um, you know, foreign holidays by 2022. Um, you know, there'll be less use of rural space. But I think, I think the focus on, on work-life balance, I mean, we as a business have, have thought very hard about that, particularly in the last 14, 15 months. Um, is is here to stay. I think the, the the flexibility in working is going to drive drive this as something which 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 will be a a, a continued opportunity, not something that's just going to sort of going to change as we change back, as it were, when we when we cease to um, cease, cease to be sort of constrained by COVID and constrained by foreign travel. But what about things at the current time? And I don't want to dwell on the negative, but things that we that it would be difficult to plan for in that in that sort of diversification piece in that diversification planning exercise. I mean, I guess at the moment that the environmental land management scheme, which has started, which has been being trialled in various places, particularly, I mean, one thinks of the big trials up in North Northumberland, the 23 Burns project. I think it's called seems to have been rumbling on for quite a while. Defra unveiled a bit more on the 15th of March, but not much is is yet known really in a concrete way. I mean, I take it you're not advising your clients other than in generic terms where they can start to think about placing their money or even raising investment, borrowing and things like that in terms of of, of schemes which will definitely unlock that new subsidy. I think it would be very unwise to advise on the creation of a new business that relied significantly upon um, that Elms income or some other form of subsidy income, because how on earth can you measure it at the moment? And particularly as so many of these projects require significant amounts of capital, 
um, you, you need to be able to forecast revenues that you can depend upon. And so the, the way that I approach it is if we can secure payments from ELMS or some other source of um, subsidy funding, then that's fantastic. But um, the, the exclusion of those has to be built into a sensitivity analysis. Uh, I think there are some that we can probably rely upon with a certain level of certainty. I think providing public access through private lands where there was previously no public access is up there. But other than that, well, I suppose also um, it could be to do with uh, um, taking a less intensive farming approach, perhaps regenerative agriculture, that there may be support for that. But you you would be ill-advised to start building various different subsidy supports into your cash flow and taking that to the bank and saying, can I borrow on this basis? And I guess in in that sense, there, there, there is a culture change, um, at least, at, not necessarily on the part of, of good advisors, but I think in the part of for example, those who are going to be considering applications for for, for, for debt finance. I mean, I, I I know from having spoken to to, to the I suppose to various various bits of the high street banks who, who who look after SME businesses, quite how concerned they've been over the last three four years about the prospects for their agricultural clients, and actually how perhaps how, how unclosely, if that's a word, they'd actually looked at. At the um, at, at the figures before they lent, and how how dependent those figures were actually on the on the subsidy that is now being phased out, which everyone had taken for granted until the the Brexit vote. I suppose it's probably worth just 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 from the point of view of creating that opportunity. I mean, we've still got historically low debt available to us for 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 a long term. I mean, I take it that that is that is something you are factoring into your thinking in terms of of creating these opportunities. It's, it's a great time to borrow money, but it has to be done upon careful analysis of revenues that you can depend upon. With your point about over-reliance on agricultural subsidy, we've built a model called the Time to Review tool, which is available to download free of charge from the Strutton Parker website, which is called the Rural Hub. And it forecasts key revenues around profitability and liquidity, both at today's date and in 2028, when we know that the basic payment scheme will have, reg- will have completely tapered out. And effectively, it allows you to ask the question, what next? And that's at the heart of the diversification approach that we take. We, we effectively lift the bonnet on the whole business using corporate finance ratios around profitability, liquidity, gearing and efficiency. And fundamental to it is the question that how reliant is this business on agricultural subsidy and what we try and do through a placemaking approach is consider different layered uses that are complementary to one another which can be combined to form a complementary cluster of businesses and you can generally do it in a way where adding layers on top of the core business is relatively inexpensive and it goes back to your point about um, securing bank debt at the moment. Placemaking is the approach of creating an, as many reasons to spend time in a place as possible. And if you can use the resources available to you in the agricultural environment, like access to woodlands, access to parkland, um, and layer all of those around a core use, then you will significantly increase the footfall to the environment, significantly increase the revenue and the profitability. And that is when you can really take advantage of the low bank debt because um, they all um, there's this, the, the sum is greater than the parts. 
And so you, you end up with a higher revenue model and um, it, it enables you to borrow with more confidence um, at the point when you're planning the uh, the viability of your of your enterprise. And, and as to the point about the the whole being greater than the sum of the parts before I, I come to Claire, but also I suppose because it, it may well be material in terms of of the markets that are emerging on an environmental basis, if I can put it that way. What about collaboration? I mean, you can take, you know. You might have 1,500 acres, and that may be enough to, to to layer businesses which are your own without collaborating with your neighbour. But you might only have 500 acres, and you might have a neighbour with 750 on the other and 250 on the other. But the one with 250 acres has got the shop frontage, as it were, on on the on on the, on the sort of the de- decent public highway. Are there? Opp- I mean, thinking about cult- cultural changes that are needed. I mean, there's certainly one change you've identified, which is. Which is, is is not predicating one's business model on on subsidy, which so many people I fear have done. Um, but also, I just wonder whether there is a, there is a big opportunity for collaboration, and whether you actually think that there will be um, a lot more collaboration between neighbouring landowners. I'd like to think so. Um, the reason being that if if you can if if between two or more landowners, you think that you can create um, a better experience for the customer then the customer won't see the boundaries in the title boundary in, in, in the title deeds between one lander and, and the next. All they'll see is the experience in the day out. And so if you can have a joined up view about what your collective resource capability is and have an agreement about who will be facilitating what parts of that customer journey for the benefit of all involved in the collective, then I can only see the upside. And um, you have to consider without the input and the collaboration with my neighbour, would I be able to deliver the same level of customer journey and customer satisfaction that I could do with them? And if the answer is no, then I think uh, that collaboration should be a priority in discussions. Claire, I think probably it's, it's worth our thinking about actually what the Environment Bill is doing, but I want to come back to that point because I think that there is a sort of, as I put it, a nascent, a, a growing, if you like, green environment. And if one's able to make better use of, of say, two and a half thousand acres in three ownership to to do the sort of diversification that um, in, in terms of actually running you know, businesses that, you know, that, that, I, that I perhaps describe in this way that require a lot of active husbandry or which one facilitates. The Environment Bill has things like uh, carbon governance as, 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 as a novelty in it. Where where are we heading with the environment bill? It's been grinding through Parliament for a long time. And what do you think of the commercial opportunities that are that are going to come from it? So the environment bill is actually in the House of Lords today um, for its second reading. So it's it was quickly introduced after the Queen's speech um, and the opening up of Parliament. Um, so it was introduced in the House of Lords on the 26th of May. Um, so it's gone through its second reading today. Um, I've not seen anything in the, the press so far. Um, so it's now reporting that it's going to its committee stage in the House of Lords. So we've seen that opening part of the House of Lords stage um, to be quite quick, whereas we've obviously seen it trundle through its House of Commons stages um, throughout uh, last year um, and into this year, where it was significantly delayed because they, there wasn't enough sitting time. So it was delayed until the opening of the, the new parliamentary session. So that's currently where we are. Um, we're not really, we're not expecting any significant details, even though there have been 15 or so proposed amendments from various um, 
different groups of MPs within the Commons. But the legally binding targets that we are going to see as golden threads running through the Environment Bill, and they will um, link in with the Agricultural Act and also the planning bill that's going to come into its first reading of parliamentary sessions um, in due course. Those legally binding targets in relation to air, water, um, biodiversity net gain, we're not really expecting to see um, those to be enshrined in the legislation or come into force until the 31st of October 2022. So that does give us some time to, to get our heads around what that mechanism uh, and those targets will look like and what they will realistically mean for a variety of different sectors. And obviously, the agricultural sector will have some level of impact um, from uh, the, the targets in the Environment Bill due to air um, and the emissions that come from the agricultural sector are circa around about 10% of the overall um, uh, air emissions that we have. Uh, water in terms of water quality, um, rural land holdings obviously have numerous surface water courses either running through or nearby um, and you know, living where I am uh, being surrounded by uh, a dairy farm um, and I know that there are uh, spreading activities that are good uh, agricultural practice um, but do have uh, an effect on water quality so all those things uh, I need to be bearing in mind when we're talking about the, the agricultural sector now for the rural sector obviously we've got biodiversity net gain you've already said conservation covenants the protection of green space the environmental land management system and they will all have an impact as well um, both positively and perhaps negatively but um, at least we'll have some mechanisms in, in which to be able to advise our clients accordingly hopefully in the next um, few months uh, whilst we work into that bill becoming an act of parliament and receiving its royal assent in due course and in terms of particularly drilling down to the to the, to, the, to the opportunities, I mean, I I suppose it's two obvious ones are well, two two obvious things that one that, that one has to grapple with is is let's say one takes that fifteen hundred acre farm and one wants to do some sort of diversification that involves planning permission. The 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 point about biodiversity net gain might be that that one, within the compass of those fifteen hundred acres, one needs to I suppose find space which which is the the, the yeah, relatively speaking, the green lung, if that's not a slightly old-fashioned term, um, to, 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 to actually facilitate that planning permission. I suppose it may be the case from what Ed's said that actually that the access to that, that green space is something which actually drives footfall, so you get double benefit. But what about, and I think this is in part where, I mean, biodiversity net gain, but also I suppose conservation covenants. I mean, the, the idea of if you like green land banking, you know, making a business of, of of actually providing that unbuilt green space for others to um, to to actually use on a financial basis to enable their planning permissions. I mean, we've already got SANGs in the sense of suitable suitable alternative natural green space. But I, do you think we are on the threshold, Claire, of, of of something very big for those who are you know who who have got the spare green space that they're able to to keep as such in the longer term to to to, to use to offset development by other people elsewhere? So what we've seen with SANGs, which is the the, the suitable alternative natural green space, um, they were introduced by the Habitat Regulations in 2010. And what we saw with SANGs was that where you had that proximity uh, to the development between 
it was in the legislation it's 0.5 kilometers to a kilometer that was the the sort of distance of how the green space had to be in in relation to the development in terms of its proximity that there was a certain amount of green land banking that was going on and those areas of land were being um, sold as a premium um, because they were able to be used to offset the well they were being used as a mitigation measure uh, for the rise in any of the uh, population metrics so to avoid any further damage to um, the sensitive sites such as the Ramsar or the special protection areas SANGs were used as a way of driving footfall into alternative green spaces what we're seeing with biodiversity net gain is very similar to what we saw originally through the SANGs development so potential green land banking, conversations that are being had in relation to green spaces that could be used to offset development, so off-site mitigation works um, to increase that biodiversity net gain and also the access to green space and natural um, environmental enhancement and conservation. And it really goes back to what Ed was saying about rural placemaking and about driving footfall. Um, So if you've got better access to green spaces, better access to um, special protection areas and around that, those protected sites. So if you're thinking about maybe a wildlife sanctuary of some sort in terms of breeding birds, you might not want complete access to that site, but if you had some green space around it um, and then that really does drive that footfall, visitor numbers. Um, so uh, and about creating that sense of space so, um, and place. So it, that does go back to what Ed was saying before. There are, I think, now two private nature reserves in the country. Um, and you know, I suspect we've categorised them as such, but you know, with, with rewilding also being of interest, that actually there are going to be plenty of opportunities that, that, that are going to have to be balanced. It's not going to be un, un, unmitigated, uncontrolled public access, but, but certainly commercial opportunities arise out of that. I mean, here's a lawyer's question, Claire. I mean, the the way in which the Environment Bill sets up the conservation covenants is that it's a sort of you know, statutory overlay for what are essentially private um, agreements between parties, their, their, their covenants, their, their property agreements. And then it sort of says that you can modify or discharge them just the way as you would be able to modify or discharge restrictive covenants in under the under the law of property act in the uh, in the, the the lands chamber of the upper tribunal which is all a bit uh, a bit of a bit of sort of lawyer's, lawyer's jargon but it, it it does mean that it is a essentially it's a free market it's not a heavily regulated market i mean there's regulation in it in so far as there'll be environmental designations which will stop you, you know, uh, doing certain things in this agreement within certain areas and certain 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 environmental designations may indeed give you more value in, in, a, in a sort of negotiation which has a sort of planning-led con- and growth-led context. But I'm just wondering wondering how you see actually see, see it panning out. I mean, is it for the lawyers to actually work out how to write this market in creating, I don't know, very good contracts, sophisticated contracts, which people can enter, think about and then enter, enter into on a commercial basis? Or are we going to, going to look to the government for that? Well, I think that there's going to be a set criteria of what should be, and obviously we've got the detail in the legislation already in the in the bill. Um, ultimately, there will be a level of of detail that's required in the conservation covenants. But as you say, they, they these are a private a private agreements. They will be 
uh, a minimum requirement of how long they're to be held for. There is some talk about how they could be held in perpetuity at the moment and in the same way as uh, the biodiversity net gain. That's also being discussed because well, there is a requirement for the minimum term, which is 30 years, for that to be extended. Now, obviously, conservation covenants, what it does is effectively sterilises the land. So I think for a lawyer's perspective, you need to be very careful about how they are um, drafted so that they combine what's required under the legislation, but also they do provide a mechanism of not necessarily sterilising the land. If you do want to have some kind of development later on, that you are then creating uh, an agreement that can be flexible in terms of its release, as you've just said, in terms of being released from those covenants. And Ed, in terms of, of your clients, how much interest are you seeing or, or indeed how much interest are you trying to generate? I mean, and I suppose the other, the other thing we, we spoke about 10 minutes ago about what can you reasonably predict at the moment that you actually sort of start to work into your business model. Well, at the moment, we've got a, a bill that's going through Parliament and isn't going to come into force until October next year. You know, the detail is being thrashed out. There's some detail on the face of it, and more so actually the, on the face of the Environment Bill than there is the Agriculture Act. But there'll still be plenty of secondary legislation. I mean, what can you do at the moment? Can would people be well advised at least at the moment to try and be, be valuing their their carbon, if I can put it that way, their green space? I, I think there's definitely an argument for valuing the the carbon offsetting capability of the natural assets on your farm or estate. And the reason I think that, it's not just because of the inherent interest that I have as an individual, but also many of our clients have in, 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 that, in that asset, I suppose you would say. But it's also because in the modern day, businesses and their brand in particular is co-created with their customers. And they are as much a reflection of the attitudes and the priorities of their customers as they are the identity of the senior management within those businesses. And we know from the marvellous work that David Attenborough has done, that Greta Thunberg has done, that people are really, really concerned to ensure the welfare of um, the environment they live in and the impact they have through their day-to-day lives. And one of the things that enables that we as landowners are able to do is to facilitate um, any any anxiety through an offset mechanism. And what I'm getting at is because brands are socially co-created, companies will be trying to make themselves available as a way for their customers to have a guilt-free experience um, in terms of the impact that their acquisition, their service, that the purchase that they make, the product they buy, has on the environment. And so as landowners, we hold a resource which is very valuable in that context. And the business argument is you you, you pair up with a corporate who is trying to um, identify themselves as being kind to the earth and as being environmentally diligent and aware of the impact they have around them. Um, And as landowners, we have the resources and the assets in order to help them achieve that. And key to that is the story that you can create having done a survey around your natural capital capability, around the habitats that you have within your forests, within your pastures, within your um, thick tussocky grass. And it's the story that sells the product. 
and so I would always encourage people to try and carry out a survey if they can, because it gives them a better story. I'm interested. I mean, that, that's that's a, a, a point very, very well made, and, and it leads, I think, quite naturally onto onto this one. It, it, it is the psychology of the whole of, of, of this piece. I mean, where policy principle underpinning the new subsidy is public benefit for public goods. I think what you're saying is is that that there are ready markets where yeah, members of the public, in a sense, will will pay for 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 and it's private money, I suppose, to a degree for private goods. I mean, I, one thinks of a sort of permissive access scheme which runs off coming to the diversified farm and and and, and shopping in the in the cafe and the farm shop and and going for a, a walk. I'm, but I, I just wonder, in terms of of the uh, of, of the environmental land management scheme and and that that public policy underpinning of public benefit for public goods, whether you think that that the case has been made sufficiently um, to the public that that actually it's been entrenched as as a, as a as a basis for subsidy. I mean, Ed, do you do you have do you have a view on that? I mean, I've sat on lots of lots of committees, and and it's a sort of it's a concept which I've been hearing for the last decade. But no one's actually, I think, done a, a, a terribly good evangelical job, if I can put it that way, in selling that to the to, to the public. That if you you drive through the Peak District, you know, you're actually in in a, in a decade's time, what you will have paid for in in much more direct ways, because it might have gone into restoring dry stone walls or you know, permitting more access or whatever, is is the landscape you're actually enjoying. That's a really interesting question, and I don't think it's been communicated. Uh, in that way. And I think it's because, you know, we all behave in the way we're incentivized to behave. And until relatively recently, we've been incentivized to do whatever we can to claim an uncapped area-based subsidy. We haven't been incentivized to deliver the, the message that the customer who buys their product or buys the service from the farm in the rural environment is enhancing the the environment in which they're, they're acting as a consumer. And I think you will see over the course of the next few years, people shifting in their behaviour. I say businesses shifting in their behaviour because they will be financially incentivized to do so. And that message will become core to their own marketing. And at that point, I think consumers will become much, much more aware of their role in the public good for public benefit equation. Ed, thank you. I mean, one last point that I wanted to, to, to touch on um, and it's it's something else that's coming out of the government's legislative programme. And we saw, I suppose, the high point of, of the commercial private market, if you like, for, for residential letting was the Housing Act 1996, which amended the Housing Act 1988 and introduced the assured short-held tenancy. And then steadily, every government in the intervening 25 years has, I suppose, in terms of the ability I suppose, to get possession, which is fundamentally what makes those agreements, um, you know, I mean, good commercial bases for letting and good for a landlord, has eroded them, and we're certainly getting noises from 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 the government that actually you know, that, that it will take further steps to 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 embolden the position of the tenant. And clearly, you know, we've we've sat through a period of fourteen, fifteen months with COVID, where where there has been government circumscription of the ability of a landlord to to, to get 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 possession of, a, of, of such property as non-payment of rent for example or, or the tenant has actually been you know, damaging damaging the property placemaking clearly needs to take account of once advising a rural estate with with you know 20 30 cottages um, in a particular locale forming part of a village 
I mean, do, do you see that the that those sort of circumscription, the, the 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 controls that increasingly on free market letting are going to be in any way mitigated by the benefits of of place making of having people in place longer, perhaps being able to charge charge better rents if one has thought more about how one is presenting the property? Or do you actually see that that that, that what was a liberation, I guess, for these sorts of clients in the late 1990s is 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 now in, in trend going to be uh, be on a sort of downward cycle and they'll be looking to other things as the big profit centers on their estates. I, I think that I mean, placemaking has its roots in the residential and the retail and the urban sectors. And so um, large developers will have dedicated placemaking teams and they think very carefully about how can we increase the enjoyment and the experience of the people that will live here. And they do that because they want to sell their properties for the greatest amount per square foot. Landlords take a stakeholder approach. And so um, the end result isn't the same. They're not selling the properties. They're going to be holding the properties as um, as stakeholders, as um, custodians, sorry. Um, but I certainly see that there is an argument for going through the entire thinking process that a placemaking department of a developer would do because effectively you're selling a product. You're selling the experience of bringing up your family in that particular house. And what we need to get better at as a sector is looking outside what we'd previously thought was the boundary of the house. And if there's anything that we can do as owners and custodians of these landscapes to improve the wider experience, so putting permissive footpaths through the rest of the estate that go past the um, the, 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 the businesses, the shops, um, who are maybe tenants or trading partners of the estate and who collectively improve or increase the enjoyment of the experience of living in that house, then undoubtedly there is a role in placemaking in maintaining high levels of uh, of rent, in maintaining long periods of occupants with good quality tenants. Now, in fact, I would I would refer to them as customers because the language dictates the mindset. And so if you think of them as a customer and you think of a customer journey, which goes beyond the garden gate into um, into the forest and down to where the shops or where the restaurant, the other estate properties might be, then it, it recalibrates your, your, your thought process around what you as a landlord can give them in order to secure um, uh, better covenant terms. And so I certainly think that placemaking has a role in um, liberating what I agree are quite um quite difficult consequences of the 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 extra um benefits that are afforded i mean quite rightly to you know p- people deserve to have the right to live in the property um where they're bringing up their family uh, but but of course it needs to be on terms that are acceptable so that the landlord can um carry out maintenance and also make a reasonable profit Ed, thank you. I'm conscious that our, our 45 minutes or so uh, are up. And I think I said at the start that we weren't promising to change the world in 45 minutes or to make anyone's fortune. But I think I, I draw a number of conclusions from what we're saying, which is that it, it is clearly a very, very good time to look at your land-based rural business, to, 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 to open up the bonnet and to look very, very carefully about, about the sort of the moving parts underneath it, not just now, but but looking forward to, to, to the 1st of January 2028 and beyond. And that can be in terms of, of, of what we've discussed. We really haven't, other than the implications of Brexit and the change of subsidy, even got on to, to, to Brexit and, and, and friction in terms of 
of, of, of trade markets internationally, it's an opportunity to look and think very, very carefully about about place that's driving footfall across across those those land based businesses into those land based businesses and and perhaps on on a, a multiple um, land holding basis perhaps collaboration with neighbours I think I think there are huge I don't like the word synergies but I think there are huge potential synergies there and economies to be made in in running businesses and and opportunities to be taken particularly for example in terms of of, of, of the, the nascent market in green space. And I think there are also virtuous circles in this. Um, Claire touched on it. If you are putting aside for the purpose of, of, of engaging with market in terms of, 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 of development and, and, and green space, preservation of, of, of green space, then, then it may well be that that's compatible with, for example, a big permissive access scheme, which will drive that footfall. So I think plenty to think about. I'd like to thank Ed, and I'd like to thank Claire, and that's all for today.